0: Last Sunday, John Eric preached, did an excellent job preaching on how uh, we believe or affir- believe in or affirm the doctrine of the church. I'm going to teach you a really big word today. You can uh, use this like to impress someone, okay? The word is ecclesiology. Can everybody say ecclesiology? Okay? That just means the study of the church. It's what you believe about the church. Now, really quickly, I'm going to talk about the church a lot today. When I say the word church, I want you to think of the people, not the 9 a.m. service or the 11 a.m. service, okay? So when I say, you know, when I talk about being part of a church, I want you to think about belonging to a community or a family of people, not attending a service. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because this sermon will not make sense if you just think about an 60- or 90-minute period on a Sunday morning, okay? I'm talking about a group of people, the church. So today is our last sermon in the We Believe series, and then uh, next week our district superintendent will be here to celebrate with us. He'll be preaching, and then after that, well, you'll have, to find, you'll have to come Saturday and Sunday to find out what we're doing after that, okay? Let's just say I've been working on my miming. All right. So last Sunday, John Eric preached on the church. I was here at the 9 o'clock service, and then my son and I quickly scooted out and hopped on the L and took a mostly quiet ride until we got on the Broad Street line to the Eagles game. And the Market-Frankford line was nice and quiet. We got on the Broad Street line. It was like, (laughs) he and I were both holding each other's hands like, (laughs) uh. We got on this express train. This is hit both of our first regular season pro football game. This is his first football game ever. I've only been to like preseason and scrimmages. So first Eagles game. We went to that. Uh, We got on the Broad Street line. It was an express. It just went straight to the stadium. It didn't stop. And we're there, and everyone is E-A-G-L. And it's like, we're just like, we're both looking at each other as introverts like... (laughs) <laughs> we're just laughing kind of like at these people right you know mind you we're going to the game but you know you know i wasn't wearing a jersey or anything and we get to the game and we walk in and there were three people in our section it was 90 degrees they had full eagle bodysuits dressed like a bald eagle like like a, it was like a costume 90 degrees and i was like I wasn't even committed enough to wear a jersey because it was hot. I was like, I'll wear a green t-shirt, but I'm not going to even wear two layers. It was so hot. And we get in and, you know, our seats, we were three rows down from the top of the stadium. I got vertigo like, uh, uh, from being that high up. And um, <laughs> throughout, this, throughout the game, it was a very difficult game. Throughout the game, people would just burst out into song. And they would cheer, and then they would scream at the refs. And, you know, there were people in our crowd that I think they really thought the refs could hear them. Um, you know, or like they were, the, they were like, everybody stand up, you know, during an important third down. Sorry if you don't understand football, maybe none of this makes sense. But during an important play, everyone would stand up. And it was like these people, they, they always had like a beer in each hand, by the way. They, they thought they really had an impact on the game. And uh, so if you are familiar, the, that game Sunday was a tough game. And I knew that we had to ride the L back and get here in time for the 6 p.m. baptism service. So at the end of the third quarter, we kind of snuck out. Because we had to walk like a thousand l- rows down. So we start walking, and every... You know, every level we stop and would check the score on the TV, and then we go another level and check the score, and we could tell because we'd hear either cheering or booing what was going on, but I was just like, listen, we we do not have the level of devotion that some of these folks have. Um, I thought that I was a devoted fan until I saw people dressed in full-body Eagles costumes, who in a game that we were losing, stayed in the top row till the final play and probably didn't get home till seven or eight because of traffic or whatever, riding the L. And and I realized I am not as devoted. I am a casual football fan. I am am a fan so far as it is convenient. Uh, It may cost me a little something, but there is a limit to my devotion to football, unlike <laughs> some of these folks who were incredibly devoted. I actually felt like, and I felt this way the first time I went to a Penn State University football game, this is like a religion. They are busting out into song. I mean, it reminded me of a church. They're busting out into song, and they all know the words. It felt like my first day at a church. I don't know the words. I don't know the routines. I don't know the chance, you know, like, uh, what's going on here? I'm just trying to find a seat. Oh, now i got to sit by these strangers that are smelly. And it it really felt like going back to church for the first time sometime. And uh, I realized I did not have the proper dress. I did not know the songs as well as I thought I did. I didn't know the customs and the rituals. Well, uh, that was a great reminder to me of the level of devotion that was exercised in the early church. Now, I don't think they chanted and screamed and shouted, and I don't think they dressed up in costumes and that kind of stuff. But as we read through the book of Acts, and today we are talking about the church again, two weeks in a row, as we read through through the book of Acts, we see this group of people that are are intensely devoted to Jesus and to each other. And that's what I wanna talk about this morning. We're gonna look at Acts chapter two, verses 42 through 47. For those of you that aren't familiar, Acts chapter 2 is a very famous passage. It is about the initially it is about essentially the birth of the church. So here we are, we're about to celebrate 10 years since the birth of True Vine, and we're going to look back at the birth of the church, Capital C church, Jesus's church in Acts chapter 2. Really quickly, in Acts chapter 2, um there are only 120 followers of Jesus really, like, gathered in the city of Jerusalem. There's about 120. They were told by Jesus, don't leave this town until you've received the Holy Spirit. That had never happened before, so they don't even know what that looks like. So they just spent day in and day out, those 120 people, praying in a room through, around the clock. And I'm sure that not everyone was there 24-7. Some of them had to work or go to sleep. But I mean, throughout the 10 days that it took, they were cycling in and out of that room praying. So after 10 days, there comes a Jewish festival uh, called Pentecost. It was commemorated 50 days after uh, Moses gave the Ten Commandments. That's what they were celebrating, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And they... uh, Sorry, Pentecost commemorates the giving of the Ten Commandments. This story takes place 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. So these are all Jewish people in a Jewish town celebrating a Jewish holiday, right? And in the midst of that, The Holy Spirit descends in the form of tongues of fire on the apostles, and they begin to preach and proclaim the works of God in other languages that they had never learned, and that is tongues. They begin to pray and preach in tongues, and everyone who has come from out of town to this festival is like, how do they know my language? Because it's this diverse group. They are followers of the Jewish faith, but they are from all the outlying cities. So it'd be kind of like if the Olympics were held in Philadelphia, we would have visitors from all countries, right? So imagine a pastor or a group of Christians standing up and preaching in all the languages that were represented in the, you know, the Olympic village, for lack of, you know, so to speak, and the attention that that would get. So through that preaching, 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus. And the church goes in one morning... Because this happened at 9, it was not even 9 in the morning when this happened. 3,000 people give their lives to the Lord. That's not a bad uh, morning. By lunch, you've led 3,000 people to Jesus. Right? So by lunch, they're baptizing them. So the church goes from 120 people to 3,120 people in a few hours. So how did that group function? That's what I want to look at today. All of a sudden, you go from a a little church about the size of True Vine to a mega church. How do you keep 3,000 people organized? How do you keep them focused? How do you disciple them? They didn't have a structure for that. No one had written a book on how to do that yet. There was no DVD curriculum or seminary they could go to. How did they manage to lead that first church? That's what we're going to look at today in Acts 2. All right, so This is immediately after those 3,000 people come to Christ. This is how it describes their church life. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all and as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily, uh, adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. And we find that within two years of this happening, the church has grown from 3,000 to 5,000. That's pretty quick. And mind you, this this is the only church There's not a church in the next town or Presbyterian church, Baptist church. It's just, this is it. This is everybody there is that's a follower of Jesus uh, in the world, other than maybe a few people that were left behind through Jesus' teaching ministry when he traveled. So, I want to look at the beginning here. It says, They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, for those of you that aspire to preach and teach... This is like the easiest four-point sermon outline ever. Those of you that have taken the preaching lab, I would ask you, what were they devoted to? And you would say, the Apostles' teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayer. There's a free sermon outline for you, okay? If you ever get to lead a Bible study or speak or preach. And we are going to talk about those four things today, but there is one word this morning that I would like to highlight. More than the four things that they practice. It is this word, devoted. They were continually devoted to those four things. The word devoted means to give yourself to something. Devotion, to give yourself to something, is the complete opposite of the current culture in the American church. Because the current American church is mostly consumeristic and give me something. Entertain me. Instruct me. Give me childcare. Spoon-feed me the Bible. But they were giving themselves to the church. Does that make sense? You understand, like, this is totally different than consumer Christianity. They are not there to suck up all the resources, they are there to contribute and make disciples, okay? So, sorry if I offended you by that sucking sound. (laughs) So, we are going to, really quickly, we are going to look at what they devoted themselves to, but then we're going to circle back and talk about the necessity of devotion. First, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, This is right here. The apostles teaching. Okay, mind you, at this point they didn't have a New Testament. They had an Old Testament. They had you know the first thirty-nine books of what's in our Bible. They had all the prophets and Moses and the David and Psalms and Proverbs. But they didn't have the Gospels—Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They didn't have the epistles; hadn't even been written yet. Acts—they're living. So you know they don't have all the stuff we have, right? So what they started to do. They had apostles. They had people that actually lived and walked with Jesus, and they started to devote themselves to what the apostles were teaching, which we do now have in the form of the New Testament. We have books written, like, we have five books written by the apostle John. We have, I think, 13 books written by the apostle Paul. We have a book from the apostle James. We have... uh, Uh, Well, we got more. I'm just drawing a blank. But we got uh, Peter. We got two books written by the Apostle Peter. You know, like we have the Apostles teaching now in written form. They did not. What they did have back then, and I'm just going to make a quick plug for this. There was a document called, and it's still available, the Didache. The Didache is a summary of what the Apostles taught, taught. And the Didache was written around the same time as the Book of Acts. The didache is spelled D-I-D-A-C-H-E. You would spell it (laughs) didache, which is how I feel some mornings. The didache is not the Bible. It should not be viewed as equal to the Bible, but it is a very helpful resource if you want a summary of what the early church believed before the New Testament was written. It gives instructions on like how to baptize. It actually says that if a, if a prophet or an apostle shows up in your town for more than three days and asks for money all the time, they're not a real prophet. That would help many of us to know that that's what the early church believed. It actually says in the didache uh, not to terminate a pregnancy by abortion, which means that the early church believed in the sanctity of life. And so while there is no nice straightforward passage in the New Testament that addresses that, there are several that tangentially address that. The early church, as early as 65 AD, saw that as something that we shouldn't be doing. Does that make sense? It's a helpful resource, it's free, it's short. It would only take you 10 or 15 minutes to read. I want to clarify one more time, it is not the Bible, it is not equal to the Bible. But if you're reading a bunch of Philip Yancey and Joel Osteen, you'd be better off reading the Dadake. okay? I hope, uh, okay. is that okay if I say that? All right. All right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we will see, I hope you're back next week. All right. <laughs> Philip Yancey and Joel Osteen are not in the same category I should say All right, uh, they were continually devoting themselves uh, one more thing I want to say here's how we can devote ourselves to the apostles teaching Bible study we have something they did not have we have the New Testament uh, I, heard a, I read a statistic this week 90% of Christians have not read the entire Bible that's wild to me I mean, in the generation where the Bible is easier to get, 90% of us... And listen, if you've only been following Jesus for like a year, you get a free pass. But if it's been 5 or 10 or 20, 30 years, woo, you better get your act together and read this book. Um, So, uh, listen, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So, If if reading it, read it at home, study at home. There are more tools available now than there have ever been. But, you know, you also want to get in a discipleship group because there we study it together. And studying the Bible in private is good. But that is also, if you just do that, that's how cults get started. And you get these crazy ideas. You know, you start to believe these weird things. So study it in community with other people because they're going to make sure you don't go nuts and don't go crazy. Uh, participate in our services and attend equipping sessions where we really dig into difficult and timely things. Okay, I gotta move. They also devoted themselves to fellowship or one another. Okay, they devoted themselves to fellowship. Now these folks were all Jewish at this point. They all spoke the same language. They all ate the same food. They celebrated the same holidays. They probably knew each other. They, they grew spiritually along the lines of an existing community they had fellowship in fact that word fellowship in greek is koinonia and it means to participate in community you do not have fellowship when you don't participate okay which means show okay i am not picking on may but she's doing exactly what i'm talking about Sitting in the back row with your arms crossed and leaving as soon as the service Dismisses is not fellowship may fellowships very well. She blows up my phone every day So but I'm just if you slip in five minutes late and leave five minutes early and don't shake a hand say hello Share test, you know like do anything that is not fellowship right that's church attendance, but you're not going deep. You're not building relationships. You actually have to participate in the community to have fellowship. Um, we had a guest speaker here a few weeks, a few years ago, named Ron Walborn, that said that people are always drawn to compelling communities. And as I read this story right here, that is a compelling community. They had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions in order to give to people that had need. They met day by day. They shared meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. No one grumbled. They were genuine and joyful. They praised God. They had favor. We'll get to that in a moment. Uh, And the the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. People are drawn to that. People aren't drawn to churches with division. People aren't drawn to grumpy Christians, they're drawn to a compelling community. And I have found, as I've done our membership classes as a church, about 75 to 90% of the people that join our church come because they were invited by someone. They don't come because of an outreach event. I mean, some do, but it's a small number, 10% maybe. 75 to 90% come because I know so-and-so that goes, and most of them it's, I know Val, or I'm related to Christine. <laughs> it, 75 to 90% of the people that join our church, I'm only speaking for our church, it's because they know someone that goes here and they were invited. That's the way this has always worked. You know, big programs and uh, attract, attractions, that's not in the Bible, Community is in the Bible. Signs and wonders are in the Bible. All right. Next, they gave themselves to communion, essentially. It says that they gave themselves to the breaking of bread. Now, there's a little bit of debate about what it means by the breaking of bread. Some people think that it means a a communal meal that everyone ate together. Other people think it means communion. Uh, Those are not mutually exclusive. Communion was a meal. It was a little more than like, remember, you know, like the little wafers that you, and the, you get the little shot glass of the grape juice? Okay, communion in the Bible was a meal. And the bread and the, grape, the wine was part of a fuller meal. So did they give themselves to eating together or did they give themselves to the Lord's Supper? Both. The breaking of bread can be referring to both. So we want to make sure that we aren't just doing communion on Sundays, which we are going to do today, but also that we are having meals together, that we are connecting with people in our church, like inviting people over for dinner sometime, uh, when we have meals as a church, participating in those types of things. Finally, uh, they gave themselves to prayer. Prayer would have already been part of their lifestyle as Jewish people. Uh, they would have already been familiar with prayer. In fact, in some translations, it says they gave themselves to the prayers, which makes it sound like these were maybe some ritualistic prayers that they would you know, like they would pray through the Shema, which is Deuteronomy six four, "Hear, O Israel: The Lord your God, the Lord is one." They gave themselves both to patterned prayers, but also spontaneous prayers. They gave themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer, both spontaneous and structured. In fact, that explosive growth that they experienced was the direct result of 10 days of prayer. It didn't happen because of 10 days of outreach. It didn't happen because of 10 days of Bible teaching. It was 10 days of prayer that resulted in, all of a sudden, 3,000 people responding to Jesus and following him. Uh, it was just a couple years ago, two or three years ago, from this story that the disciples were asking Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray, which is the only thing that they did ask him to teach them. So I want to make a real quick plug for our upper room prayer meeting on the second and fourth Saturdays of the month. It meets right here at 630, right right here in the sanctuary, 630. They just met last night. Um, You know, put that in your calendar. Be devoted to prayer. Now, that's not the only way you can pray. Obviously, you can pray at home, pray while you're driving, pray at work. Uh, There are a lot of ways to be devoted to prayer, and I want to encourage you to develop a prayer life at home where your immediate response to almost everything is pray about it rather than get mad and complain and then pray about the complaining. Right? When you read the Bible and something jumps out at you, you should pray about that. When you get bad news, you should immediately pray about that before you go be anxious about it. When you get good news, thank God. You know, pray about it. Um, When prayer is your first response, you are really growing in prayer. And that's something that you can develop in a group as well as individually. Now, I want to get back to this word devotion. We talked about what they're devoted to, but this devotion is what drove them. In the absence of devotion, actual real devotion, churches are forced to create programs and attractions to try to get people to do what they should already be doing. Uh, I've said this many, many times to many, many pastors. The job of a pastor is to get Christians to do what they already say they believe. It should not be that way. The job of anyone in spiritual leadership should be to equip people, not to convince people. Uh, you know, someone says they, they believe in miracles but never pray for, the, for healing, or they believe in prayer but don't pray. It shouldn't take someone to have to convince them to do that, but that is, in a lot of ways, that is what church leadership has turned into, convincing people to do what they say they want to do. Um, as a church, many churches have programs and ministries for all of these, we have a program for Bible study. We have a ministry for fellowship. We have to organize it. We have to invite. We have to beg. We have to plead. You know what that means? There's a lack of devotion. Churches should not have to program everything for us, right? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not complaining like I, I'm very happy like here. I'm not trying to complain. I'm just saying the overarching picture in America is please Please come. That indicates a lack of devotion. Right? Doesn't, I mean, am I understanding this wrong? They were full of devotion. They did not have to have programs. They didn't have to have invitations. A church full of devotion doesn't need someone to organize a Bible class. They facilitate the Bible class that popped up spontaneously. Does that make sense? They don't have to beg people to come spend time with each other, each other or pray because it's already happening. Uh, I want to show you really quickly, this is our church's, well, part of our denomination actually, but this is our denomination's entire belief or statement about the church. It's two slides. The church consists of all those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are redeemed through his blood and are born again of the Holy Spirit. Christ is the head of the body the church, which has been commissioned by him to go into all the world as a witness, preaching the gospel to all nations. The local church is a body of believers in Christ who are joined together for the worship of God, for edification through the word of God, for prayer, fellowship, the proclamation of the gospel, and observance of the ordinances of baptism in the Lord's Supper. I want to just preach this slide for a second, okay? It's not the Bible, but i just got to explain why it's written the way that it's written. Christians hanging out together is not the church. A church, uh, so Three Christians getting together in a coffee shop is very good. We should do that, but that does not make a church. A church in the Bible has elders, preaching, discipline, proclamation of the gospel, ordinances like communion and baptism. All of those are necessary for a church to exist, and when those things are missing, you do not have a church. You following me so far? Okay. Why does that matter? It matters because you or I sitting home alone watching a sermon on TV is not church. It can still be good. I'm not saying that it's not good. I'm just saying that's not church. That's a snack. Don't do that. If there's someone that you really love to watch on the internet or on TV... Go for it. You just need to know that's a side dish. Because, you know, I'm going to go to church at home today. No, you're not. Unless you're going to gather up some your teddy bears and make them elders and deacons. You know? Listen. Okay. Watching church... Watching church, I mean, just that phrase, you could never find that concept in the New Testament, watching church, whether you're doing it on a TV or in the back row. Watching church on TV or the internet, that is for folks that have legitimate physical limitations. I can't get, I have no, I have no transportation. I'm sick. I have a disability. It's, that is a valid option for them. It is uh, it is a valid option for those who would experience persecution by publicly attending a church service. It is not a valid excuse for able-bodied Christians on a regular basis. Do you understand? Listen, if you if if your church experience is sitting and watching something in your pajamas online, like where where are your spiritual gifts getting developed? Where are you serving? How are you giving? Is there anyone that's call, from that church on the internet that you watch that's calling you up, seeing you how you're doing? Are they praying for you by name? I mean, none of that is happening, right? So if you want to do that in addition to being part of a local church, do it and feel great about it, but it can't replace a local church. Does, does that make sense? Okay, so, uh, okay, I'm glad that you agreed with that because I was prepared to make an argument, but sounds like I don't have to. So when there is devotion to these four things, or just devotion in general, here are the results from uh, the final portion of the passage. I love these results, and don't you want all of these things? It says, uh, they shared. They began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing. Um, Let me go back two more. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. That word means reverence. It means they walked into each other's presence and felt the weight of the presence of the Lord. You know, you you get around these people and you feel, okay, God is here. And you have reverence and awe. That's one of the results. Signs and wonders. We had, uh, John McManus was up here with a sign. He showed us a sign today. No, not that kind of sign. Miraculous signs and wonders. They shared. They were in each other's homes. They were joyful and genuine, glad and sincere. They had favor in the community. I want to talk about that for a moment. They had favor in the community. That means that the community around them looked at Christians positively. And the Christians in this country have preferred to have power instead of favor. And when you have power without favor, you're looked at as an oppressor. You're looked at as someone that manipulates and controls. We really ought to get back to seeking favor, not power. And the way that the church, the way that Christians obtain favor is by service. We do it by serving people, not telling them what to do. We get it through serving. And if we have favor, people will follow Jesus even if we don't legislate it. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Like, we, we have, Christians have exercised a lot of power in the United States in the last 50 or 60 years, but our favor has been diminishing. And for that, for many reasons, people are, and some of which are very valid, people are very upset with the church we need favor again, and favor is accumulated through service, humble service in a community. Um, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he was concerned that the church in Corinth was deserting the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And that's kind of how I want to wrap this up. If Christianity has ever felt kind of confusing to you, like, I don't know why this church does baptism this way, and this church does baptism that way, and this church has these rules about communion, and this church has those rules about communion, and they believe this, and they believe that, Paul is calling the Corinthian church back to simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. That's the lens that everything should be judged through, devotion to Jesus, which means Every church should be a Christ-centered church. And not every church is a Christ-centered church. Some of them are denomination-centered. Some of them are tradition-centered. Some of them are ethnicity-centered. They're not Jesus-centered. If if we're going to be biblical, we have to make devotion to Jesus primary and first priority. Following that? Now, I would not ask you to be devoted to Jesus without reminding you about Jesus' devotion to you. you. You are not the initiator of this devotion relationship between you and Jesus. You respond to his devotion. So this morning, this is not part of our normal church calendar. We are doing this slightly off our normal church calendar this morning. We are going to observe communion. This We call communion an ordinance. Some people call it a sacrament. We call it an ordinance. Um, I'll explain that some other day. But it's one of the things that a church should have. A church should have communion. A church should have baptism. I want to ask John McManus to come up. John's one of our elders, and he's going to lead us in our communion declaration uh, and pray for us. But really quickly... We know that the bread here represents Jesus' body that was broken for us. We use grape juice rather than wine, but it represents Jesus' blood that was shed for us. Uh, I'm going to hand it off to John, and he's going to help us prepare to observe communion.
1: Would you please stand and join me in reading this declaration? We believe that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We believe that in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We declare that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. With reverence and solemnity, we declare that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. We advise that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body christ eat and drink judgment on themselves jim told me at the beginning that if i had any additional words to share with you that at the risk of his reputation of letting me do this that i could go ahead and say something and so i've been thinking about uh all of our involvement judy and i in all the countries where we lived in uh, around communion once a month in the churches that we've attended and when we were in Peru um, one of the first ministries I had I was the pastor of the deacons and the deaconesses and that church had 30 deacons and 30 deaconesses it was a big church and each month because I was their pastor I was responsible to get the wine there was no grape juice for sale so we always used wine And I went down to an open-air market near our house, and I bought two big jugs of wine and took them to church. And I used to tell Judy, I think the lady that owns that store thinks that I'm a drunk. (laughs) And every month I go through two big jugs of wine. And then also I thought about in Peru, we used the... um, Banderas, the uh, serving trays full of cups that uh, were the uh, deacons, the deaconesses would put the juice into the or the wine into the cups, and then we would serve them on Sunday morning. Well, the cups and the uh, banderas, the trays were not available in Peru, so we had to get them from someplace else. And if we had friends that were coming down to, uh, from the United States or from even from Europe, we'd ask them if they could try and get some of these uh, uh, banderas and the cups and have them sent to them, and they'd bring them in their luggage. And all of that work, it, and it was a lot of work, You're calling people on the telephone, ordering the cups, ordering the trays, uh, buying the wine er- every month. And then after the communion all of the deacons and the deaconesses would go around to all of the pews and they would pick up all of the cups and they would take them back to the church kitchen and the deaconesses would wash them all and we didn't have the glass ones because they weighed a lot and they broke so we always ordered the plastic ones you know the ones that we throw away if you go to a church that uses these things Uh, they would wash all those cups And when we were in smaller churches, and I was the pastor, Judy and I would spend a long time standing at the kitchen sink washing those cups. Why? Communion is important. And I think, let's remember that. As we celebrate communion this morning, this is not something we just do. This is something that Jesus said was important. It commemorates in him we're commemorating him, his sacrifice, his love for us. He gave his life for us. His body was broken. And we want to thank him for giving us communion to remember him today. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for Jesus Christ. We're so grateful for his sacrifice, his love, his blood that was poured out for us to wash away our sins and give us the chance to live in salvation and to live with him for all of eternity and father we also want to thank you that we are part of a worldwide movement the church of the lord jesus christ and your church all over the world celebrates communion and that symbolizes among other things the unity that we have in christ it is in his name that we pray amen amen